0: So last week, we left the Israelites uh, divided into two kingdoms. They were no longer just the Israelites. They were now the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, and they were divided. They are both taken captive. Israel gets taken captive by the Assyrians. Judah is taken captive by the Babylonians. And so we start our message today when we ended today, really, with uh, a divided kingdom. And they are also now in exile. They are no longer living in their promised land. They are uh, in captivity. They've been there for about 70 years. Um, That's where we're going to start today. When the king of Persia, good old king of Persia, uh, declares that anybody that wants to can go and rebuild the temple. They can be released and be free to go start rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed during all of the wars. And so that is where we, I keep wanting to point to, Pastor Tracy's lights that were here, but I'm sorry. So, we are we have the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, those are coming next in the series. So, those are the two books that are about the rebuilding of the walls and the rebuilding of the temple around Jerusalem. And then, after Ezra and Nehemiah, we have Esther. Um, We don't really 100% know who wrote Esther or what time she was written in. Scholars believe she might have been written. While Ezra was rebuilding the temple, or maybe a little bit before, we're not 100% sure, but she comes after that. Today we're going to talk about the prophets, which is really exciting. There is one more book that we will not mention, but we want to mention every single book of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that is Lamentations. Lamentations falls in the middle of all of the prophets, but is not actually a book of prophecy. It is uh, five poems all about Jerusalem and its destruction and the lament lamentations, the lament of the sorrow about what was happening to Jerusalem. So you're going to find that sandwiched in with all of the prophets, but it is not actually a book of prophecy. It's a book of history. Yes? Yes. Poetry. History. Uh, yeah. Anyways, sorry. I've been reading a lot of these, and they all get mixed up in my head now. So, there are four major prophets. We have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And there are 12 major prophets. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you might hear them called the 12. They get called that a lot. Um, So, I'm going to name all. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. (sighs) Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I felt like, you know, at the end of the Olympics, I should try and make an Olympic record for how fast I could say those. So... Today, there is so much to cover in all of those prophets that I can't possibly do it, but the Bible Project does a really great job of summarizing the books of the prophets, so we're going to watch that today. Before we get started in that, I have a slight disclaimer. We are going to agree to disagree with the Bible Project because they do not include Daniel as a book of prophecy. And I can allow that. There is a lot of history in the book of Daniel, but it is also a book of prophecy. So for our purposes, we're going to consider a book of prophets, but if you notice it's not in there, we still love them anyway, so let's watch it.
1: Ezekiel, Obadiah, Habakkuk. What do these names have in common? Well, they're three of the 15 prophets that have their own books in the Bible.
2: And if you've tried to read these books, odds are you got lost in their dense poetry and strange imagery. But these books are super important for understanding the overall biblical
1: story. So let's talk about how to read the prophets. When I hear the word prophet, I think of a fortune teller, someone who predicts the future.
2: That's what being a prophet means in many cultures, but not in the Bible. While the biblical prophets sometimes speak about the future, they're way more than fortune tellers.
1: How should I think about them?
2: Well, they were Israelites who had a radical encounter with God's presence and then were commissioned to go and speak on God's behalf.
1: Like a representative.
2: Right. And the thing that they cared about the most is the mutual partnership that existed between God and the Israelites.
1: Right, the partnership. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and invited them to become a nation of justice and generosity that would represent his character to the nations.
2: And so this partnership required all Israelites to give their trust and allegiance to their God alone. In the Bible, this partnership's called the covenant.
1: But the leaders, the priests, the kings led Israel astray and they broke the covenant.
2: And so this is where the prophets came in to remind Israel of their role in the partnership. And they did this in three ways. First, they were constantly accusing Israel for violating the terms of the covenant. The charges usually include idolatry, alliances with other nations and their gods, and allowing injustice towards the poor.
1: Ah, so like covenant lawyers.
2: Right. And so second, the prophets called the Israelites to repent, which means simply to turn around. They spoke of God's mercy to forgive them if they would just confess and change their ways.
1: But Israel and its leaders did not change. Things went from bad to worse.
2: And so that brings us to the third way the prophets emphasized the covenant. They announced the consequences for breaking it, which they called the Day of the Lord.
1: Oh yeah, the apocalypse. Visions of the end of the world. Well, sort of.
2: The prophets were mostly interested in how God would bring his justice on Israel's corruption and on the violent nations around them. And while explaining these local events, they often used cosmic imagery
1: cosmic imagery
2: yeah like Jeremiah he described the exile of the Israelites to Babylon as the undoing of creation itself the land dissolves into chaos and disorder no light no animals or people or Isaiah described the downfall of Babylon as the disintegration of the cosmos stars falling from the sky the sun going dark for the prophets when God acts in human history to bring justice it's a day of the Lord
1: so the prophets aren't talking about the end of the world
2: Well, hold on, they're doing many things at once. The cosmic imagery shows how these important events of their day fit into the bigger story of God's mission to bring down every corrupt and violent nation once and for all. The prophets cared about the present and the future, and the cosmic imagery allowed them to talk about both at the same time.
1: Got it. So, no matter when you live, the day of the Lord's bad news if you're part of Babylon.
2: But it's good news if you're waiting for God's kingdom.
1: The day of the Lord
2: pointed to the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. And once again, the prophets use cosmic poetry to describe it. They see a new Jerusalem, like a new Garden of Eden, with all humanity living at peace with each other and with the animals. And there is a new messianic king who restores God's kingdom in a renewed creation.
1: Beautiful. So those are the three themes in the prophets. These prophets must have been very powerful, persuasive speakers.
2: Well, some were, but others lived on the margins. They would often perform strange symbolic stunts in public to communicate their message. Like when Ezekiel lay in the dirt and built a model of Jerusalem
1: being attacked by Babylon.
2: Or when Isaiah walked around naked for three years as a symbol of the humiliation of exile.
1: So do people pay attention to
2: them? Not really. The stories in these books show how the prophets were a minority group mostly shunned by Israel's leaders. And their writings were a kind of resistance literature. Most people ignored them, that is, until their warnings came true in the Babylonian exile.
1: And after that, people began to take their words seriously.
2: Yes, the works of these earlier prophets were inherited by later unnamed prophets who studied these texts intensely. They're the ones who arranged the Hebrew scriptures as we know them, including the books of the prophets.
1: Okay, and there's 15 books of the prophets. The big three are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel.
2: And then there's a collection of 12 smaller prophetic works unified on a single scroll. And in each of these books, you'll read stories about the prophets and their poems and visions, all arranged to show the cosmic meaning of Israel's history. How God would turn their tragic story of failure and exile
1: into a story of hope and restoration for all nations.
2: And it's that twin message of prophetic warning and of hope that the prophets cared about so much. And it's a message that we still need to hear today.
0: Did you know that he walked around naked for three years? Did you read that in the Bible? That's a fun little tidbit, isn't it? I don't know that most of the prophets were people that you would go out of your way to befriend if they were living today. They were the oddities, like they said, on the outskirts of society. But they had a job to do, and they took it very seriously. Um, I love the book of the prophets. They... (laughs) They're a little strange, and they're a little hard to read, and you might be tempted sometimes to skip over them in your Bible reading, but don't. Because when you understand what they're actually doing, what they're actually saying, it fits into the entire narrative of Scripture. The prophets do this marvelous, marvelous thing, and that is they point to Jesus. Uh, it's so wonderful. The prophets, the Bible itself, contain over 300 prophecies that point to Jesus, that he fulfills every single one of them. So when you read uh, these stories in Isaiah or Jeremiah or wherever, if you're reading them on their own, they don't make sense. But when you have the understanding that they are pointing towards something, it takes on such meaning, such understanding, and can add so much value to your walk. Uh, the last, the books of the, in the Old Testament are not in or- chronological order, especially the prophets. Uh, the first prophet, I think, would be Jonah if it was in chronological order, although I could be wrong about that. It was not my notes, and I was trying to cut things out, and I cut that out, and I should have just left it cut out. But anyways. Uh, the books of the prophet are not in chronological order, but the last one actually is in order. The book of Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament and is actually in chronological order. He is the last prophet that wrote. And so when we look at the books of the Old Testament, we see that they are pointing towards Jesus. So I want to read with you from Malachi chapter 4, verses 1. To three. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace, all the arrogant and every evil evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left behind, but for you who revere the name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Now, I don't know that I've ever put frolicking and calves together in my mind, um, and so once I read that, I definitely went down an internet rabbit hill and started Googling cow frolicking videos. So I have one for all of you today. Just, I would like that imagery in your head f- as I did. Could we have my cow frolicking video? Come on. Look at that little pre steak. Isn't he cute? Okay. Right? All right. That has no value to our message day except for that it's adorable, and so I had to do it. Yeah, thank you for uh, doing that with me. So, back to important things. The book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, is a book of hope. And I don't think I ever realized that before until I got into what I understand this to be. It's talking here about when the sun comes. There will be healing. Who is the son? The son is Jesus. When he comes, we will be healed by his wounds, by his stripes, by his blood. We will be healed. The last book of the Old Testament is a book that leaves us with hope. You are not staying where you are, Israel. This is not the way you are always going to be. There is someone coming. There is hope for you. I love that before we turn these thin, translucent pages into the New Testament, we are left with so much hope. Did you know... I'm going to go back to cows. I'm sorry. I went on a really long rabbit trail. Do you know that they frolic when they're released from captivity? That's when they sense joy. Do you understand the symbolism of that? When Israel is released from the captivity of their sin, they will frolic like cows, like calves. It's so ridiculous, but it's actually so appropriate. I love it so much. And whenever you see a cow, I hope from now on you think of joy and freedom from sin. That's what my goal for today is. All right. Thank you. Oh, I got a clap. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Moving right along. So we leave. There's so much. We could go through the prophets. We could go through so much pointing to Jesus, but we don't have time. We're going to leave the Old Testament on this note of hope, that when we are released from the captivity of our sin through the Son, Jesus Christ, we experience joy like there is no other joy in our lives. And we turn into the answer. We turn to the hope. We turn to what they had been waiting for. We start In the Gospels. So, the first four books of the New Testament, if you don't know, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we refer to them as the Gospels. They tell the story of Jesus. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they tell a similar story from a similar viewpoint of Jesus, and then John uh, also tells the story of Jesus, but it's a bit different. So, let's uh, just go quickly through each of the books and what they represent. So, the book of Matthew was written. Uh, I guess I'll say this, each book was written to a different audience with a different purpose. So the book of Matthew was written to Jewish people because Matthew himself was a a Jewish follower of Christ. His book uh, includes things that would be meaningful to the Jewish people that would help them understand that Jesus was actually the fulfillment of the prophesied Messiah. So he includes a genealogy that takes it all the way back to Abraham. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Abraham and the covenant God made with him that his people would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. The people of uh, Israel Understood that the Messiah would come out of Abraham, and so he does a genealogy that takes him all the way back to Abraham. Matthew reminds the Jewish readers of that. There are two main covenants that God made with His people: that uh, a king from the line of David would sit on the throne forever, and that Jesus, uh, sorry, and that Abraham was told that the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Jesus is the fulfillment of both of those things. Jesus is the king from the line of David that will sit on the throne forever. And through Jesus, every single person on this earth can be blessed through forgiveness of sin and freedom of sin. The book of Mark is uh, the action-packed gospel, you could say. It has lots of action and lots of... um, kind of to the point. His goal was to tell the Roman people about Jesus. Jesus here is portrayed as a servant. He And he spends a lot of time focusing on the works and the deeds of Jesus. And there's a reason for that, because the Roman people were very to the point. They didn't want their time wasted. They wanted to know the facts. They wanted to know the truth so they could make their decisions, so that they could go on their way. So Mark specifically takes the gospel and writes it for them so that they can understand. I love that. I love that so much. The gospel is true, but we can tell the points of it in ways that people can take it and apply it to their lives. I love that so much. We have Luke. He's the education-educated one of the bunch. He was a doctor, and he was known for his attention to detail, which I find reassuring as a physician. Uh, he is the only writer of the gospel that wasn't Jewish. Uh, He was a Gentile writing to Gentiles. His is the most comprehensive of all of the Gospels, and it stresses Jesus' relationships with people. It emphasizes prayer and miracles, and he tells what the Gentiles needed to understand about Jesus. He also includes a whole genealogy, but his actually goes all the way back to Adam, which is what they needed to hear. Uh, It's tailored. I love it. And then we have the book of John. Uh, The book of John is written by the disciple that Jesus loved. Wouldn't you love to have that title? That's a great title. Uh, His audience was mostly Gentile believers or unbelievers that were looking and seeking for truth. He spends a lot of time talking about Jesus as the Word, Jesus as the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God. And he's different from the other three Gospels. He doesn't include uh, the account of Jesus birth, his childhood, the temptation, the transfiguration. He doesn't talk about um, the disciples. He doesn't have a lot of the parables. His is very different, but it it adds another perspective on Jesus. So now that we know the very basics of each of these books that we're going to explore today, let's go through the life of Jesus. So here's what you probably know about the birth of Jesus. He was born in a manger in Bethlehem by a virgin Mary, His actual dad is God, but the guy who raised him was Joseph. Uh, We celebrate his birthday on December 25th. That is not his actual birthday. We sing a lot of songs, we eat a lot of food, and we spend way too much money. That is what most people know about the birth of Jesus. But what we actually need to know about the birth of Jesus is that he comes as the fulfillment to Old Testament prophecy. He is our hope and our salvation. He is more than a baby in a manger. He is a man that dies on the cross, is raised again in three days, and gives us eternity with Jesus. That is what we need to know about the birth of Jesus, and the rest of it is just fluff we've added along the way. Let's read from Matthew 1, 18 to 22, the account of Jesus' birth. Sorry. Put my sticky in the wrong place. Really, the wrong place. In case you guys didn't know, I have trouble with numbers, so I highlighted Matthew 18, not Matthew 1, 18. I've got issues. That's great. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not expose her want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered that, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What was conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from from sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The prophecy here that they are talking about is from Isaiah 14. Hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah. It was in there. It's written. They they knew it. They had the guidepost that they could look back to and see that Jesus was the fulfillment. You can go through the account of Matthew, and really he goes prophecy by prophecy explaining how Jesus is the fulfillment. It's actually really neat when you understand that to go through and see how he points back to the Old Testament to see how Jesus is the fulfillment. We're going to skip ahead a bit. Uh, We're going to go, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. We don't have time to go into John the Baptist today. But he actually came as the forerunner to Christ. He came beforehand and he uh, prepared the way for Jesus. He let people know that the Messiah was coming. And you can go back in scripture and the role of John the Baptist was prophesied in the Old Testament. He is actually a fulfillment of the Jesus story. He is also part of that. So Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist And after that, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. And for 40 days, Satan tempts him. Over and over, he is tempted. And over and over, Jesus rebukes Satan uh, and goes back to Scripture and says, It is written. It is written. It is written. That is how you defeat the enemy in your life, by going back to Scripture. It is written. It is written. It is written. After that is sort of the formal start to Jesus' ministry here on earth. He didn't minister alone. He had the 12 disciples. I'm sure you've heard of them. Uh, And they were the 12 disciples had a specific job. They were charged with letting the Jewish people know uh, that the kingdom of God was near. That was their job. During his life on earth, Jesus performed miracles. He was charismatic. He drew crowds. People wanted to be around him. They wanted to see what he was about. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He taught what it was to be a Christian and how to live a Christian life before the word Christian even existed. He did the Sermon on the Mount. He he did everything. Everything he did so much and he also made the Jewish religious leaders really, really, really angry because he was he wasn't contradicting them, he was speaking the truth that they were missing. So we fast forward. Oh, sorry, I missed it. I missed one part. While Jesus was on the earth near the end of his ministry, he took his twelve disciples aside. And he let them in on a little secret. Matthew 16, 21 says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. The disciples didn't always know what was coming, but Jesus, near the end, started to let them them in on what was coming, and they didn't understand. They tried their best, but they didn't fully understand. But Jesus knew. He knew exactly what was coming, and he served and lived with a full understanding of what he was about to do. I don't, have you ever done that? You have something terrible coming, and you feel like you're dragging your butt through your day, like you have to. No offense, Juno, but you have to go to the dentist and get a filling. (laughs) Does anybody else just kind of like dread the rest of their day? Or if you know it's at the end of the week, you're dreading your full week because you know this awful thing is coming. And you're just a little off. You maybe are a little short with your children. You're maybe just not fully there. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. And yet he poured himself out again and again and again. We fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden is the last physically free moments of Jesus' life. He went there to pray with his disciples after he had shared the Passover and led them in their very first communion. And he went there to pray because he understood what was coming. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was it was nighttime. In the thickness of night, Jesus was praying, understanding that in the next hours, he was going to suffer and die and rise again to fulfill prophecies from years and years ago. If you remember, we read several weeks, about, weeks ago about another uh, person who climbed a mountain to be sacrificed. Isaac and Abraham climbed a mountain to be sacrificed. Jesus asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, and they climbed that mountain. And Abraham walked to that top of that hill, understanding that God would intervene. And at the last moment, a, sacrifice, a, a substitute was provided, and Isaac was not sacrificed. I think of Jesus knowing that there would be no substitute he walked to the top of that hill. He prayed in that garden, understanding there was no way out for him. There was no substitute. There was no last-minute reprieve. He was it. That gets me every time. He knew exactly, and he did it anyways. What follows in the garden is betrayal from Jesus, from Judas. Then we get denial by Peter, we have false accusations, we have political angling, and we have a frenzied crowd thirsty for the blood of Jesus. If you don't know these stories, I encourage you to go through and read the Gospels. They are all in there. You can read them all for yourselves. Through the ugliness and horror of the days that come, through the crucifixion story, through his trial, if you even want to call it that, through the beatings, through the blood, it's ugly, it's awful, but through it there is a beauty because it is fulfilling exactly what was supposed to happen. Through all of this, we see prophecies fulfilled on how Jesus died, on how his accusers would accuse him. On Do you know there's prophecies about what happened to his clothes, about what would happen to the, the pieces of silver that Judas was given as payment for his betrayal? All of these things were prophesied, and they are all fulfilled in these moments. In the Garden of Eden, God poured out his love by creating mankind. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweat drops of blood in agony as he anticipated the crucifixion. He made his way up on a hill called Golgotha where his, he stumbled and he carried his own cross. And while they tortured him and ridiculed him and nailed his hands and his feet and rammed thorns into his head, he remained silent. Never once did he call out and beg for them to stop. Never once did he answer his accusers and say, this isn't fair. This never once. You know when he did open his mouth? In Luke 23 34, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. The thing he chose to say was to ask mercy for someone else. It was never for himself, it was always for us. Everything he did, every prophecy he fulfilled, everything we can trace through these four books, he did for you. He did for the people that were screaming to murder him in that crowd. He did it for them. He did it for the people begging for his death. He did it for them. And at the end of the day, he would do it all over again because he understood how much God loves us. He understood that God wants to have a relationship with us and that his death was the only way for that to happen. Because sin requires a penalty. It requires a penalty. And for years, the Israelites had been offering animals and sacrifices, and that blood was covering their sin, but it was never sufficient. They would leave the altar, and they would need to come back and do it all over again. As soon as they left, they were already guilty of sin again. It wasn't sustainable, but the blood of Jesus was a one-time sacrifice for all time. You rise from the, the altar, you open your eyes after you pray and ask for forgiveness, and you are forgiven. That sin that you ask forgiveness for doesn't come back and haunt you. It is forgiven for all time. You might need to repent again later for something else. But in that moment, you are forgiven. Even though we are stubborn, arrogant, greedy, self-righteous people, God loves us and he wants to be in relationship with us. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked in his presence. They were with him. They were with God. And then sin entered the world and separated them. And God wanted us to be able to enjoy his presence again. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, through his blood, we are able to be in his presence again. Jesus dies on the cross. And the moment that Jesus, our king, dies, the veil in the temple that separated the people from his presence was torn in two. Matthew 27, 51 tells us, At the moment the curtain at that moment, the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. There was no longer any separation between those of us that have a relationship with Jesus and his presence. Jesus' body was placed in a tomb, and three days later, the women, as was the custom, went to prepare his body. And when they got there, the big, high, heavy, giant stone was rolled away, and his body wasn't there. Instead, there was an angel telling them, he's not here, he has risen. I can't imagine what they were thinking. They were probably terrified. They were probably deeply confused. It was very, there was probably a lot of emotions going on. And they also probably didn't fully understand what they were being told. For 40 days, Jesus appeared alive on the earth after his death. He appeared to crowds. He appeared to the disciples. And then the Father takes him up to heaven, and we call that the ascension. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus left a command to his disciples, and I'm sure Uh, Some of you are familiar with it. It's the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even until the very end of the age. You'll remember that I said before that the disciples had a job to do when Jesus was on earth, and that was to tell the Jewish people that the Messiah was coming, that the kingdom of heaven was coming. At Jesus' death and resurrection, they have a new job, and that is to tell everyone that Jesus died for them. It's no longer just a message for the Jewish people. It is a message for everyone. Jesus didn't die just for the people of Israel. He died for everyone. We sit in this room today hearing about Jesus because the message stopped being just for Israel and it became for everyone. The command was to tell everyone they could find that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died and rose again and that your sins can be forgiven and you can have eternity in heaven with God. It was no longer just a story for one people group. It was a story for All of us. Your place of birth does not exclude you from the gift of Jesus. Your history, your background, your sin, your lifestyle, it does not exclude you from Jesus. He calls you to repentance from those things. He calls you to be in right relationship with him. He calls you to be changed into his likeness. But there's nothing about you that excludes you from Jesus. You come to him and you ask for forgiveness for the things that are sinful in your life. And you allow him to transform you and change you into his image. There is no one that draws breath on this earth, that has ever drawn breath on this earth, that is excluded from Jesus. What a gift that is these past weeks that we've been working through the Bible, we've been trying to uh, answer a couple questions. What does the scripture reveal about God, and how does it point to Jesus? And this week, the answer is an infinity loop, really. We see Jesus. Through Jesus, we see God, and because of God's love for us, we have Jesus. It just goes in a circle over and over and over. Jesus reveals to us the heart of the Father, and because we know Jesus, we can know God. Jesus is the revelation of what God is like. According to Colossians, Jesus is the visible, tangible image of the invisible God. We read that in Colossians 1, 15-16. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the visible tangible expression of God I love that so much in John 14 9 to 11 we read an account of Jesus after he has appeared to them after uh after and he says this Jesus answered don't you know me Philip even after I have been among you for such a long time Any, anyone who has seen me has seen the father And how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So Philip had asked to see God. He asked Jesus, show us the Father. Show me God. And then I'll believe. Then I'll know. And Jesus is saying, you've been with me for so long, Philip. We've walked together We've broken bread together. You still don't understand that to know me is for you to be able to know God? And I wonder if God ever wants to echo those words to us, shake us a little bit, when we say, just show me, God, just do this miracle, just throw this thing, just show me, show me that you're God, show me that you're real, show me so I can understand your character. I don't understand. I wonder if he wants to shake us and just say, how many things have I done for you? How have I showed up for you over and over and over again, and you still don't know me? You still think you don't know me? As followers of Christ, we know God because we know Jesus. On our website, there's an excellent article written by Pastor Dell, our former senior pastor, and it's called, Do You Know God? And um, we're going to put the link in the notes and in social media this week. I think we'll post it. It's an excellent, excellent article, and I encourage you to read it. And This is where I want to land today. As followers of Christ, we can know God. And we should live our lives showing the evidence of people that know God. And in this article, there's a list of how you can tell what it looks like when you know God well. And I'm going to read some of them to us today. When you know God, you will find yourself trusting God instead of doubting him. Accepting the fact that God loves you extravagantly. You are sure of your salvation through faith in Jesus. You are learning and obeying God's command. You are not sinning habitually. You are growing in kingdom fruit. You are focusing on God first instead of yourself. You are loving God instead of the world. You are fearing God and honoring his holiness. You are loving your Christian family. You're keeping your mind free of spiritual strongholds. You are spreading the fragrance of Christ everywhere. You are desiring to worship God deeply. You have everything you need to live well and be godly. Can you do all those things? Are you doing all those things? It's a big list, isn't it? It's okay if you can't say I do all those things because it's a process. It's a continually becoming more like Jesus. I I don't know if I have all those evidences in my life every day, but I know that as I spend time in God's word, as I pray, as I seek him, they become more and more evident and that's what he's asking us to do. We can know God and we can become like him. If you want to know God more, You spend time in God's word. You pray. You spend time in worship. You spend time with other believers. And you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal sin and sinful attitudes in your heart. And you deal with them immediately. And you do one more thing. And I think it's one of the most important. You ask the Holy Spirit to place a desire in your heart to know him more. You never get there. You never get there. If there's a day that you wake up and think, I know God enough you need to ask the Lord to do some work in your heart because you should constantly and always be desiring to know him more. There is no end achievement. I have memorized the entire book, books of the Bible. I can do them all. I have arrived. That is not a thing. God is always revealing new things to you. He is always desiring to show you new things about yourself, new things about your environment, new things about the way that you can interact with him. You are never To be satisfied with what God has given. You are always to desire to want to know God more. So that's my challenge for us today. Desire to know God more. Ask Him. Place a desire in my heart to know you more. And then do the things you need to do to fulfill that. It's one thing to want something, I want chocolate all the time. But in order to get it, I have to get up off my chair and go to the cupboard or I have to go to the store because I try not to keep it in the house. I have to do something. I have to take an action. It's one thing to desire something. It's another thing to take the actions to attain that thing you desire. So through the Holy Spirit, through him in your life, you need to take the physical steps to do the thing to know him more. You need to be in the word. You need to be praying. You need to be asking for the Holy Spirit. You need to be spending time in worship and you need to be with other believers. This is not a job that you do on your own. This is a job that we do together as a family of Christ.